Welcome to Snazzy Stories. Put some pepper in thy step and lend an ear to the terrific tales of the past. Hey, welcome to Snazzy Stories. If you would like to keep the storytelling alive, please go to patreon.com slash snazzy stories and donate to my storytelling adventure. Today's story is going to focus on a group of women from the mid-1800s. Now, the women's rights movements are taken from all different perspectives and studied in many different ways. And one important view in researching and understanding the modern women's movements and the social constructs placed on women today and in today's society is taking it from a historical point of view. Now, the social constructs placed on women today have a strong historical precedent. And women are often expected to behave in certain ways and perform specific tasks. American society has made much progress, and the Leave it to Beaver stage has, for the most part, subsided. But portions of historical constructs of American culture still exist today, and they have their basis in American history. Now, balancing family, careers, and criticisms are not new topics for women. And today I would like to talk about a group of women in the mid-1800s that were a huge part of the women's rights movement, even though they maybe didn't even realize that they were a part of it. In most instances, the big three, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Susan B. Anthony, are discussed when dealing with the women's rights movements and their involvement at the Seneca Falls Convention. However, not much is heard about women in the workforce during the mid-19th century or the expectations and criticisms these women faced during the 1830s and 40s. By, the ta- by that time, the United States was becoming more and more industrialized and young women were willing to step outside their domestic spheres into factory life. For a long time, women in many societies had been trapped in domestic social roles, and they had been taught for centuries that their place is nowhere but the home. But during the 1830s and 1840s, a group of young women broke the barriers and set out to join the workforce at the Lowell Mill factories in Massachusetts. The ideas placed on women of this time was the cult of true womanhood, which meant that women obtained four different virtues— Piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity. These qualities were thought to be inherent in females, and these traits were expected of all women, even the girls who worked in the Lowell Mills in Massachusetts in the 1840s. This group of young women were expected to abide by many rules in order to keep them pure. And they dealt with criticisms from not only men and women, but their own families. Now, when these girls went to work in the Lowell Mill factories, they were also housed in the Lowell Lowell Mill boarding houses. These boarding houses were originally set up to keep their female employees pure and well within the bounds of what was thought to be true womanhood. A 10 o'clock curfew was in place, and only when a really good excuse was given could anybody come in or go out after the curfew time. Another policy that was in place for the Lowell employees was that they were expected to attend public worship. Contemporary thought was that if women fell away from religion, then they would never return to their pious life, and they would be damned. Therefore, religious attendance was absolutely necessary. The landlords of the boarding houses also watched the girls very carefully, and they were to report to their employers on the girls' general conduct 
One might say the moral police kept a close eye on their employees because one of the most important purposes at Lowell was to secure moral protection of their characters while they were residents at the Lowell factories. Employees were watched constantly with regard to their actions and their associations even. No woman was ever hired if she had been known to engage in what some might call immoral activities. And a little glimpse into the Lowell factory system is interesting because it supports the idea that women were expected to live a certain lifestyle and were to accept the common ideal of true womanhood with a smile. Still, even with these moral restrictions at the factory to maintain female purity and piety, women and men outside the factories saw the Lowell employees as a disgrace to womanhood. Even though the Lowell girls tried to live up to the standards of being true ladies. In the Lowell Offering, which was a newsletter that many of the Lowell workers used to express their opinions and thoughts, many factory girls reacted to editorials and articles written by men and women who believed women textile workers were dishonorable. One factory girl responded to an article written by Orestes A. Brownson, in which he claimed the following, quote, She who has worked in a factory is sufficient to damn to infamy the most worthy and virtuous girl, unquote. The factory girl's response was pointed. She says, quote, True, he has upon his side of fame, learning, and great talent, but I have what is better than either of these or all combined, and that is truth. Think for a moment how many of us next generation are to spring from, from mothers doomed to infamy. Ah, it may be replied, Mr. Brownson acknowledges that you may still be worthy and virtuous. Then we must be set of worthy and virtuous idiots, for not a virtuous girl of common sense would choose for an occupation one that could consign her to infamy. Unquote. She goes on to say that they are not degrading themselves or society because their religious meetings are always filled with girls. And she challenges Brownson to prove his slander if he can. Now, textile workers were placed in somewhat of an awkward position. They wanted to leave their home in, a, in the country to work in the urban factories because perhaps they wanted to learn social skills and valuable work skills. But many girls who are not the oldest sibling in the family, did not have a dowry. Therefore, a number of girls went to work in the textile mills to gain a dowry for their future marriage. The problem these girls faced was that they saw a noble cause in joining the factory system in order to provide a dowry for their marriage someday and to gain little, a little independence. But the slander was always a part of their life that they were forced to deal with. Not only was this group of women defending themselves from vicious articles and editorials, but some also to continued to have to try to convince their families that to work in the low mills is what they wanted to do and that working in the factory system did not automatically make them any less of an honorable woman. Sarah Hodgden wrote a letter to her mother proclaiming that she loved working in the mill and that she liked her boarding house as well. This letter was very positive, but she includes a very interesting statement. She writes, quote, I desire you pray that it may not be said of me when I come home that I have sold my soul for the gay vanities of this world, unquote. Sarah obviously knew what many Americans felt about her and her coworkers. 
but she begged her family, and specifically her mother, not to feel that she had betrayed her virtue. This letter indicates the possibility of an inner battle that may have taken place inside of these girls. They wanted to keep their virtue and be seen as what the world around them called true women. But they also wanted independence, and some needed to earn a dowry for marriage. Mole Mill Factory women were not only fighting negative opinions from men outside of the mills and their family, but they were also fighting women outside of the mills. Women in the home deemed these girls to be undistinguished and of the lowest class. And if they were the lowest class, they should look their part. One Mrs. Hale wrote an article for the ladies' book that vented her frustration that the employees at the low mill were only factory girls and that they were not true women. Mrs. Hale lamented for the time when, quote, the lady could be distinguished from the no lady by her dress as far as the eye could reach. But now you might stand in the same room and judging by her outward appearance, you could not tell which was which. Even gold watches are now no sure indication for they have been worn by the lowest, even by many of the factory girls, unquote. Mrs. Hale's comments accused the low mill girls of not being worthy of dressing a certain way because they were not real ladies due to their occupation. They were not true women because they showed no signs of being domestic, according to the critics inside the home. And Mrs. Hale, along with many others, felt that there should be a class distinction between this group of low girls and true women. Because the male women had no right to dress in fashionable clothing or wear gold watches because they were not true ladies. However, a woman of Lowell retorted, quote, let us endeavor to improve ourselves by making good use of the many advantages we here possess. I say let us at least strive to do this, and if we succeed, it will finally be acknowledged that factory girls shine forth in ornaments far more valuable than gold watches. Unquote. This young woman, name unknown, inspired her fellow sisters to realize that they belonged somewhere. They would show the world that they would not relinquish their desire to labor because of the social constructs placed upon their gender. One of the most intriguing and amazing acts performed by Lowell Mill women was their first strike in 1836. These women challenged not only the labor system, but also the cult of true womanhood. The reason for the strike, or the turnout, as these young women described it, was the cut in wages. When the turnout began, the mills shut down because nobody was there to work, and women paraded from several different factories. They went to Chapel Hill and listened to women speak about the indignations of their employers. This event was the first time in Lowell history that a woman spoke out publicly. This particular woman expressed that, quote, it was their duty to resist all attempts at cutting down the wages, unquote. For women to be working in the factory system and then to be publicly delivering their grievances was quite unheard of and definitely was not seen as ladylike. Such behavior directly challenged the expected trait of submissiveness. However, the aspiration that these young women had to work and earn their own living was a sign of a new thought process. This process was the desire for independence. 
These women felt determined not to be dependent upon anyone as long as they were able to work. One of the songs that contributes to this idea and that these women sang while they were working is called The Song of the Spinners. And one line in it states, quote, Dependent on others, we ne'er will be so long as we are able to spin, unquote. One very important reason for these women to be independent was the mere fact that if they were single and had no dowry, they wanted to create their own dowry simply by laboring for their own wages. Along with creating a dowry, these women also wanted something else, to be able to buy what they needed and wanted for themselves. Modern feminists like Betty Friedan also suggest that women, quote, want to say what their own lives are going to be what their own personalities are going to be like, unquote. This statement in and of itself defines independence. Women's need and want for independence was a strong factor for the young women of Lowell, and it is a common trait found in many American women today, not only for economic reasons, but also because some women want to work for self-fulfillment and to be able to afford what they wish for. The Lowell Mill girls had the desire to work and to live their own lives. Many of them wanted to get married and begin a family, and working in the factory was a means to an end. They wanted the same thing that others wanted for them or what others expected of them, but these women took a different path to get there. Most of the women ended up marrying later in life to skilled workers, and these women were absolutely resilient in the reproachful society in which they lived. A mill worker, Lucy Larkham, said it best, quote, We have hardly begun to live until we can take in the idea of the whole human family as the one to which we truly belong, unquote. Thank you for listening to Snazzy Stories. Come back again where everyone has a story.